Hello and welcome to another UK Column interview. My name's Debbie Evans and today I've brought my friend and expert back to speak to you, Cheryl Granger. Now, the COVID inquiry has decided to postpone the module for the vaccine injuries until after the election. But we're not going to bury anything. We're not going to postpone talking about vaccine injuries and the data that Cheryl is currently seeing. We're going to talk about it. And I expect most of you watching will either know somebody, uh, a friend of a friend, or perhaps a member of the family, or maybe it's you that's suffering from an adverse reaction. You know, a couple of years ago, I received an email from Cheryl and she told me who she was, that she was a self-employed pharmaceutical trainer and she was incredibly knowledgeable about all things pharmaceutical, but she was very shy about stepping forward. Um, and two years later, here we are and Cheryl is our Head of our situation room, uh, please go and look at that on the front page of the website. Mike Robinson and Cheryl have done a wonderful job putting up the situation room, which gives all the latest data and reports from Pfizer and now Moderna, um, straight from the USA, uh, with grateful thanks to the Daily Clout and also to Professor Chris Flowers. And now Cheryl's come back to talk to us today to give us an update on the situation room and on some more reports that have come out. And later on, we're gonna be talking about the revolving doors, the corruption, and the dealings with the MHRA. So please stay with us. But for now, Cheryl, welcome back, and so glad to have you here. Thanks, Debbie, always a pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, and I'm very grateful that the UK column has allowed all the um, Pfizer Moderna document analysis reports to be on site in the Situation Room. Um, and what I wanted to do on a fairly regular basis is just update people, just a quick look at each of the um, uh, reports over the last um, couple of months so that you can see the sort of detail um, that is being discovered. And obviously, if you want more information, you can go on the site and access that. Um, just to point out, clinical trials in this country um, come under the Clinical Trial Research Authority, which is part of the MHRA. So it's the MHRA overall that gives a, a tick to a clinical trial going ahead. And it should actually be given a tick by the Independent Ethics Committee as well um, to make sure it's not breaking any uh, ethical conduct. Um, and then um, there's a, a good clinical practice um, international set of standards that it should also adhere to. So um, that, as well as the declaration of Helsinki that the clinical trials are supposed to be working to, shows that participants' well-being takes precedence over the gaining of new scientific knowledge. Bear that in mind as we go through this, because um, the first slide that I want to show you um, is on um, Report 89. Now, Report 89, we discussed with Dr Chris Flowers um, a few um, weeks ago. And this is basically where there was improper delays in reporting uh, deaths in the vaccinated group um, within the Pfizer documentation. Um, and don't forget, all these things that we're talking about, they're people. They're people who volunteered for the trials and the three months um, that they were followed up for. And each serious adverse event is a person. And each death is a person. 
And bear that in mind when I tell you that in Report 89, um, they found that um, Pfizer didn't report uh, the 3.7 times the number of cardiovascular adverse event signals um, that they were finding. And they also delayed the reporting of 38 deaths. Can you imagine if that was one of your relatives? Um, and it was basically um, done because they wanted to get the license. They wanted to get the um, EUA as soon as they could. Um, and obviously, because they hadn't accurately um, reported the side effects and the uh, deaths, then the um, EUA was based on inaccurate data. Um, and on top of that, um, it's um, with data-related negligence that we're talking about that negatively impacted on the health of total uh, countless people in the world. Just to interrupt you, for people that may be watching that don't know what EUA is, could you just briefly give us an explanation so that they can put it into context? Yeah, the, this is to hurry through um, a license. So this is the emergency use authorization of something that is deemed necessary because there's nothing else available to treat a particular condition in an emergency. And they've played on that for quite some time. This report um, from the um, document analysis team has now been peer reviewed and it's been published. It's in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice and Research. That's quite a mouthful. Um, and what they've shown is that it's pre providing black letter um, evidence, which is direct legal proof of fraud um, in the trial by Pfizer. And that hopefully is something that can be used um, in the future. So that's 89. If we can move on to uh, report 90, this is the number of COVID infections that started happening when people had been uh, vaccinated. Uh, and there were thousands of cases uh, of COVID cases that were reported in the first uh, 90 days, which is the um, post-marketing surveillance period. So the first 90 days of the vaccine rollout, um, they actually found that um, most of these infections as well in the vaccinated category um, were seen as serious. So COVID-19 infections, 77% uh, of them were serious adverse events. Um, serious infection. Uh, there were 4.4% of them who died, okay? Um, and 50% of those COVID-related uh, um, adverse events began within five days after they'd been vaccinated. So they started to appear quite quickly. And funnily enough, within this Report 90, it talks about unknowns. So when it looks at gender, there were 1,650 females, there were 844 males and 573 who were unknown. I'm not being funny. I'm just saying that those people, their data wasn't properly recorded. And that is very worrying. Um, and then the other thing that we need to point out is that um, in three different places, um, the number of COVID-19 cases recorded was different. So it went from 1,927 to 2,211 to 2,391 cases. So which one is correct? It's, it's a, a mismatch of information that we keep being uh, given within these uh, reports. And don't forget, this is all the information that the FDA analysed, the MHRA was supposed to have analysed, the EMA, they would have all got the, right, the same information and they should have noticed the things that the Pfizer 
a Moderna document analysis team are being able to find. Cheryl, let me get this straight. This report is saying that thousand, there were thousands of um, COVID cases in the first 90 days after rollout. And of course, the public were being told that a, a vaccine, and I say that in inverted commas, that a vaccine is meant to prevent something. You, 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 traditionally, you would have a vaccine if you were going to another country and there was yellow fever. You would have a vaccine to prevent you from um, getting yellow fever, right? You wouldn't take a vaccine to prevent, you know, your colleagues or the NHS. So actually, what we're saying in this report, am I right, is that we have heard from other sources that this injection was neither safe nor effective. But this is cast iron proof, surely, that this is not effective and never was. Yeah, yeah. And they had a habit of hiding people's information if they didn't like the results they were getting. So if they tested people and they started proving positive, whatever you think to the test, um, then they kind of disappeared. They were disappeared. Um, they weren't included in the figures. Um, so that meant that the unvaccinated uh, group, the control group, were showing bigger figures um, than the vaccinated group. And this all sh tried to be um, information to help prove that it was effective when they hadn't included all the data. I'll add the caveat there because you led me into that nicely, Cheryl, that um, the tests, just for anybody watching that might be thinking, oh, what are they saying about this? Are, the, are they really saying the tests were both safe and effective? No, we're not saying that. We, we know that the tests were completely unreliable and we should never have had those tests rolled out. So I just wanted to say that um, before people wrote in and said, well, what are your thoughts on the tests? But we know that uh, the tests were neither effective and that many of the results that were coming back anyway were false positives. That's very true. Yeah, very true. So if we move on to Report 91, um, this is headed Moderna substitution because what um, has started to happen with this report is the Moderna information is now coming through. There's been two reports. This is the, the second one on Moderna um, uh, analysis. And what they did is that um, they didn't have biodistribution um, studies on the drug, which they should have before license. So what they asked was whether they could um, put in this um, different um, by a distribution study for a different mRNA drug, as if all mRNA drugs um, would be the same. And so this is for the uh, cyclomegalovirus. And what they did is they um, looked at the biodistribution study in rats. And the mRNA sequence, the genetic sequence for the cyclomegalovirus, is actually a different size to the uh, covid um, 19 uh, mRNA. And that means that the fatty bubble, the lipid nanoparticle that you wrap the mRNA in, will be a different size. And that size will be then um, um, giving you different um, distribution and clearance once it gets within the body. So it can't be a comparative study, it can't be a study that's any use to anybody, but this is what they use for biodistribution. Um, in the Moderna uh, documentation. And as it states there, the substituted biodistribution study itself, the one they used, didn't show that it was actually safe um, in the, uh, with the cyclomegalovirus mRNA. So why on earth would you use this anyway? 
Um, and the other thing was, it was a rat study, but it was only done on male rats. So what they showed was it was distributed um, within this study um, to 12 of 13 organs that they tested by the blood. Um, and it got into those tissues very quickly within two to eight hours after injection. And of course, because there was no female rats included, they didn't even look at the female organs because there weren't any. Just wanted to add, while well, whilst whilst you've been talking there, Cheryl, because I just wanted to just um, talk a little bit about cytomegalovirus. So I've looked on the NHS website as you've been talking, and what they say is that cytomegalovirus is otherwise known as CMV. It doesn't usually cause any symptoms and most people don't even realise they've got it. But when you do have symptoms of cytomegalovirus, they're like flu symptoms. So, you know, you get the high temperature, the aches, the, the, the whole feeling of flu, maybe feeling a bit sick. You could get some swollen glands. So some people may not even know that they've got it. Um, but there are there can be complications with cytomegalovirus um, with babies in particular. So for anybody wanting to have a look at cytomegalovirus, we'll pop a link in the um, paragraph beneath this video for you to go and have a look at. That's good, um, uh, Debbie, that you're pointing that out. The thing is, it's a completely different thing. It's not any other type of coronavirus. It's it's a different size. Uh, completely and that as I say affects the lipid nanoparticle which affects the ability to get into the tissue and what have you so it was a very <laughs> silly um, uh, one to actually offer as in your defense for biodistribution um, why would you use something that proved it wasn't safe and obviously had a distribution in lots of tissues and if you suggest in mRNA goes to all those tissues why did you actually keep telling everybody that it stayed in the arm um, so, um, again, very difficult to understand why they actually uh, did that or perhaps were allowed to do that without anybody questioning it. I've just seen on your slide, um, Cheryl, um, I, apologies if I'm jumping the gun here, but you, you talk about the um, lipid nanoparticles on, on this particular report, Report 92. Um, I didn't know if you were going to just very briefly explain the dangers actually of the lipid nanoparticles because we were always talking about mRNA but of course we've got to remember that that comes as a package with the LNPs as, as you've put yeah. them there. Yeah so the lipid nanoparticle um, is basically four fats, four different fats, two of which are, are toxic um, uh, one PEG is something that quite a lot of people have allergic reactions to um, and um, these are um, charged um, ions as well, um, which can have effect on the balance of the, the ionic balance within the body and can cause um, very many side effects in their own right. Um, but because it's a fat, it can get through the cell membrane. And that means that the mRNA, which wouldn't get through into the cell on its own, has a carrier to carry it through. Um, but there are side effects from the mRNA and there are side effects from the lipid nanoparticles, um, which um, are not generally um, advised for humans and animals. Um, so hopefully that's answered your question. Yeah, is that all yes, right? Yes, thank you so, very much. Uh, so vaccine-associated enhanced disease comes in in Report 92. 
That's a mouthful, isn't it? So that's when you get a more severe clinical presentation of the disease than normal once you've been vaccinated against that disease. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, And um, what this report uh, did was it showed that there were hundreds of possible um, VAED, that's what it gets reduced down to, um, in the first three months again after the Pfizer uh, rollout. And yet, whenever you heard anybody speaking about this, they didn't use vaccine-associated enhanced disease. What they did was talk about breakthrough cases. And that um, reduced, it minimised the severity um, of the cases. Um, And um, what the Brighton collaboration, all that is, is a list of uh, criteria. Um, It's actually... um, is um, a, a system by which you can um, uh, classify different bits of information. And what the Brighton collaboration uh, said on VAED is that it's difficult to separate vaccine failure, which are the breakthrough disease category, from the VAED in vaccinated individuals. And what it suggests that all cases of vaccine failure, in other words, when you get an infection after vaccination, should be investigated to see if it's this severe clinical presentation, VAED. Um, And the previous report of the 2,391 cases that were suspicious of uh, VAED that should be investigated, Pfizer in their uh, study admits that only 75 were actually severe cases. So it covered up the fact that it didn't investigate um, the um, breakthrough cases just to see if they were vaccine um, associated enhanced disease Um, and um, it's now difficult to do any proper assessment of these cases because we've got rid of the control group the control group is no more because they've all been offered vaccination so again things aren't quite right with all these um, studies and all this information before we move on to the next slide um, Cheryl on that one where we're talking about uh, V-A-E-D, and you're right, it is a, it is a mouthful. Um, some people that are watching are going to be vaccine injured themselves or know that someone's vaccine injured. So what actually throws them over that? Because, I mean, many are saying that they've actually got a diagnosis which says that they are vaccine injured. Does that qualify as V-A-E-D-S? Does that throw them over like a, a threshold? Does that open a door for them? Well, yes, it does do. I mean, it's like your um, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia. It's vaccine-induced. So if the the name actually links it back to what's caused it, um, then you know it is um, the vaccine that has caused it. And yes, that gives them more of a a case um, for reporting the fact um, that they have been injured by what they've been asked to take. So we now need to move on to um, the um, 93rd. I'm up to, aren't I? Yes, there are 94, so we've only got two more to go. So hopefully I'll get through these as quickly as we can. As I say, I just wanted you to be aware of the type of data that has uh, forensically been analysed so that you can see how poor it was. Um, So 93 is looking at concealed data as well as manipulated data. And this, again, is the post-marketing surveillance. This is the first 90 days after the vaccine was rolled out. And it shows that Pfizer manipulated data 
and wrongly tabulated adverse events, and that can lead to them being concealed. So what you have um, from the Brighton collaboration that we mentioned before, where they put all um, the um, side effects into um, classes, into groups, so that it's easier to handle the mammoth number that they had, you put them into system organ classes, which again gets abbreviated because everything does into SOCs. Um, and what Pfizer did is it played misassignment games. So it concealed data. It um, had unexplained causes of death. Um, so that didn't fit into any category. It had discrepancies of um, counting adverse events and discrepancies of assigning adverse events to inappropriate groups. And I'd just like to give you a few examples of that because I think it's, it's stunning. <laughs> I think it's very interesting as to how bad this got. So um, with the hematological, with the blood uh, organ category, um, they um, omitted 192 adverse events um, and that meant that you know were any of those deaths but there were things that were definitely uh, blood disorders that weren't included that they found um, when we come to the stroke um, category they found a very case of post-vaccination stroke in a seven-year-old girl but that wasn't deemed worthwhile as to be included and re-reported uh, there were 300 um, uh, side effects listed uh, sorry Two, 300 uh, side effects found, but only 292 were listed. So everything they did dilutes the signal, in this case, the stroke signal that they're actually showing. And then there were 25 cases of myocarditis and 32 cases of pericarditis that instead of being in the cardiac cardiovascular group, which you'd expect them to be in, they were actually in the immune-mediated autoimmune category. So they didn't come under. Um, the um, cardiovascular um, problematic cases. And then neurological diagnosis, which we know is a very big class, um, they had 1,225 cases that they split up into three different categories. So 41%, so the largest group were neurological, listed as neurological, but 37% went into facial paralysis and 22% were put into stroke. So that diluted the neurological um, uh, category of diagnoses. Um, very surprisingly, there was no gastrointestinal category. So there was about 6,000 um, side effects uh, within that GI category that you could have put into that GI category that weren't listed. Um, but there were only 70 cases that got into hepatic, so into the liver um, category. Um, and that only contained within that category one diagnosis, and that was for a liver injury, of which there were 70 cases reported. But the rest of them weren't included because there was no category to put them in. And then we've got um, the hematological. So going back to the blood category again, that also contained the gynecological bleeding disorders. So you probably have heard that there's been quite a lot of menstrual bleeding problems throughout the whole of um, this period of vaccination, um, Pfizer didn't create a gynecological and reproductive category. Why would they not do that? Um, so these things were hidden in the wrong category. Um, and also fatalities that were listed varied from 726, depending where you looked, to 100 and, uh, 1,223. So they lost 497 deaths. How would you feel if that was one of your relatives? 
I've just got to come in. I mean, I'm just listening to you and my jaw is dropping because I'm going right back to the beginning of our interview where you very poignantly and correctly said each one of these statistics is a person, is a loved one, is somebody's relative. And according to this report, they've never existed. They've disappeared. They've vanished. They've literally vanished off the system. Is that right? Yes. So if you go to um, the Moderna information that they've just got, on top of that, they got the um, Pfizer for the 12 to 15 year old group. And I don't know whether you've um, ever come across Maddie DeGarry, who was, I think, a 13 year old when she and her family, they, they volunteered to go into the clinical trial. And I remember seeing a video of her doing cartwheels down the driveway. She was a very active girl. And it, straight after she had the vaccination, um, she had terrible um, uh, movement problems. She had gastric problems and she now has a permanent gastric uh, tube and she is in a wheelchair and she's very unwell. And it was her parents who were part of the case to get that data. So at least they've been able to help with that, although for a very uh, terrible reason that their daughter is very severely injured. But they as soon as she got the injury, which is very close to the vaccination, they phoned up as you would do to report it, to actually get some help, to actually tell the, the, the people who were running the trial um, to, to see what they should do next. And she was dropped. She was dropped and it wasn't recognised. Um, so she would probably be one of the uh, gastro people, gastro category of, of uh, side effects that wasn't included. Sorry, I got off a tangent there, but it's just a, a, a terrible story that illustrates the, the, what's been happening. And that's the reason, I know it seems deadly boring to go through all these reports, but there's some facts that people should know. Um, it, it has been very badly done. And I can so, only say thank you to you, Cheryl, for, because I need to remind people before we go on to the, the final report, um, I need to remind people that Cheryl does all of this for nothing and she works, I can't begin to tell you how many hours, liaising and getting the information to bring it to you. So, I mean, huge thanks, Cheryl, really, because I know, I mean, we have hours and hours on the phone uh, behind the scenes, just letting you all into a secret. We do speak for hours on the phone and we're constantly brainstorming. And um, Cheryl works so hard. So thank you for bringing this to us because you're right. We need to know. And they are hard facts. And some of them are going to be very hard for the vaccine injured to hear. And I get that. And I appreciate that. And, and I thank you for listening. And I'd ask people to share this information because although it is stark and it's hard to hear, it needs to be heard. So with that said, Cheryl, do you want to take us on to, um, I think it's report 94 we're on now? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I only checked the other day. This is the last report that's up on the Daily Cloud site at the moment and obviously has been included in the uh, UK column situation room listing. Um, but um, this last one is to do with heart damage in the five to 15 year olds. Think about that. That's five to 15 year olds with heart damage. And what um, the data showed was, was that Pfizer secretly studied heart damage. Um, and they did this by looking at treponin one, 
And troponin is something that gets released into the blood when there's been damage to the heart tissue. Um, and they looked at this in five to 15 year olds um, that had had the COVID-19 uh, vaccination in 2021. And the, they did this because the Israeli Ministry of Health, um, they'd alerted the CDC in the States um, to a myocarditis safety signal. So they were saying myocarditis is actually happening. Um, and by April 2021, after the second dose, they got 35 cases of myocarditis in children and heart problems were developing in males under the age of 30. So they actually flagged this up. Um, and by uh, May 2021, um, they were seeing these troponin levels uh, showing myocarditis in teens and young adults. Um, so definitely with all the reports that came through by April 2022, Pfizer um, and the FDA were aware of the myocarditis um, because Dr. Arnie Burkhart, who was a, a wonderful um, pathologist who uh, unfortunately uh, died, um, I can't exactly remember when now, but it wasn't too long ago, um, which was very sad um, because he'd done a lot of autopsies to um, find out um, what had happened to these poor people who'd been um, died um, after the vaccine. And he'd found spike uh, protein in the myocardium um, of people who died um, when he did autopsies. Um, so the thing that uh, has been um, raised and got um, Naomi Wolf very excited when she, she talked about this was that they had a freedom of information uh, done by Ed Berkovich. So as well as having 3,250 analysts looking at all this data, doing this forensic analysis, they've got 250 lawyers on the case as well, and he's one of the lawyers. And on the 23rd of May 2021, his FOI was answered, and at the back of it, they got 42 pages that somebody had put there that I don't know whether it had been put there on purpose or by accident, but there were heavily redacted emails that had been added to the answer that had been sent to this FOI. Um, and what it showed was that most senior leaders, all the way up to the White House, knew about heart damage linked to the mRNA vaccines, uh, yet they colluded behind the scenes to conceal the side effect from the American people. So the, the email showed the panic the meetings that were held, the emails going back and forth to work out what they were going to say about this myocarditis that was being seen. And so the public health announcement was that myocarditis might result from COVID-19 infection. And what do you advise? You actually push for more COVID vaccinations because of the infection risk. And it was right the way up to the, the White House. Um, and that's the thing that's quite um, telling. A couple of things there. I mean, it's hindsight, isn't it? It all makes sense now. But um, I think for people that don't know, myocarditis, unless it's diagnosed, if somebody doesn't know that they have myocarditis, they might think that a quick jog around the block or some exercise might do them some good. Actually, that's the worst thing that anybody can do with myocarditis. And uh, the advice is always to rest. So um, it's always concerning when people are, we're hearing of people going into hospitals and they're complaining that they've got um, issues with their heart, that they believe it's their heart. They've got a racing heart. They feel palpitations. They're feeling faint, all sorts of different symptoms. 
and yet people are just being fobbed off. So many are going undiagnosed. And the myocardium, the, the, the heart, we must remember that the heart is a pump. That's what it is. And it makes this sound, we all know it, the lub-dub, the lub-dub, as it, it's, it's contracting like a pump. And the, myoc the myocardium is the middle muscular layer of the heart. So it, that's what really sort of makes it have that pumping action. So if that becomes inflamed, if that becomes damaged, then, you know, there are serious consequences. And people will say, oh, you know, heart attacks. And the medical term for a heart attack is a myocardial infarction, which means a death of part of the myocardium, the middle muscle layer of the heart. And, you know, I've spoken to many cardiac nurses and they've said to me they very rarely see a young person on their wards, on their cardiac wards. And uh, if you do see a, a young person, it's extremely rare. However, now it seems it's become almost normalized and that we're seeing more and more youngsters on cardiac wards, which is not where they should be. So the fact that this is happen happening with young people and children is extremely worrying. And as Report 94 says it all, doesn't it, really? I mean, everything's been hidden in plain sight, pretty much, Cheryl. Once you've damaged it, once you've had inflammation and it's changed the tissue, um, you've got no stem cells in your heart. That's it. Your tissue will not repair itself. And if you listen to um, eminent cardiologists like Dr. Peter McCulloch, he will say that in his career, he's probably only seen two or three cases of myocarditis. And he's been practicing for quite some time. And in America, there was 200 to 400 cases in a year recorded. So that is now been replaced by thousands of people, especially younger people, especially people who are athletic. And that's good that you did that warning about not doing exercise if this is diagnosed. Um, but of course, you've got people who are athletic and they're wanting to get on with life, are full of life, and this has stopped them in their tracks. Um, and those who are wanted careers that are, are linked to athletics can't do it anymore. And it's a very sad situation to find yourself in at such a young age. It's absolutely so tragic. And uh, as uh, most people will maybe remember that we did interview uh, Matt Letissier, um, because he's always been championing the cause for, he's never seen so many athletes, footballers, well, from all, all areas of sport, literally collapsing and dying. Um, and the list is growing and growing and growing and more and more young people. So, yeah, it's, I can't, I can't even, it's wicked, Cheryl. It's just absolutely wicked and we need to be talking about it. Is there anything else you want to tell us with regards to these reports or any more that might be coming up? I know the Moderna documents have been released, but I know there are millions of pages and it's going to take ages to analyse. But is there anything else that you wanted to update us perhaps before we go on to the MHRA and looking at the revolving doors and, and everything else? Is there anything you want to say about any reports or what's going on in the Situation Room or uh, the Daily Clout before we move on? No, I think everybody's up to date. Um, the Situation Room is up to date. But the thing that I think is good about the Situation Room is, like I've got the title at the top of each of these slides, 
it takes that title, it takes the subject matter for each of the reports and lists it. So all 94 are listed in a long column and you can click on each one that you're interested in. So if you're, for example, interested in anything to do with pregnancy, then you can pick out there's about five uh, reports that look at pregnancy and you can click on those reports quite easily because you can see what the subject matter is. So it's very easy to find your way to the information that you want. And then if you want the full report, you go through to Daily Clout um, via a link. Um, and we're going to add in the control group information that will allow people to do their health records and get a health card. And on top of that, uh, we're going to start putting on some information about things you can do to help yourself. But I think my main message is this is ongoing and it's ongoing because people have kept having vaccinations. And the thing to do is not have any more of these vaccinations. It's a cumulative effect don't have any more just say no yeah and i think it's just say no on all vaccinations isn't it and all i mean we've got so many mrna products coming down the uh, pipeline cheryl i mean you've told us about hundreds coming down through the moderna pipeline for example so everyone's got to keep their ears and eyes open but i think also you know another time we'll talk antivirals and monoclonal antibodies because that's a whole new subject which actually it does segue us nicely into the second um, part of our chat today and I'm going to introduce you to a little bit of video now just to just to get everybody in into the mood for what we're going to be talking about next so this is Dr Peter Gutscher and I'll allow him to introduce himself but please bear in mind that this video was filmed eight years ago so before mrna before all these new genomic and biological drugs that we're seeing coming down the pipeline so let's have a look at what dr peter gutcher said eight years ago about the pharmaceutical industry my name is peter gutcher i'm a director of the nordic cochrane center in copenhagen and Professor of Research Design and Analysis at the University of Copenhagen. Two years ago, I found out that our prescription drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Our drugs kill around 200,000 people in America every year, and half of these people die while they do what their doctors told them. So they die because of the side effects. The other half die because of errors. And it's often the doctors that make the errors because any drug may come with 20, 30, or 40 warnings, contraindications, precautions, and so on. No doctor in the world knows about all this. So they give patients drugs that they should not have given them that interact dangerously with other drugs or food items or so on. And then the patients die, that's the other half. So uh, the other thing I found out two years ago was that um, uh, much of what the drug industry does fulfills the criteria for organized crime in U.S. law. And they behave in many ways like the mafia does. They corrupt everyone they can corrupt. They have bought every type of person, even including ministers of health in some countries. So there is a huge amount of corruption. Well, I mean, what more can I say? Organised crime, um, the mafia. Um, 
Cheryl, you've got some pretty scary statistics, haven't you, um, which will take us nicely into talking about the MHRA, because are we looking at the MHRA as being part of an organised crime circle? Are we looking at um, the pharmaceutical industry now being the mafia? I think perhaps your statistics might give people cause for concern, shall we say. Yeah, if we can move to the um, the next slide, um, please. So that's what I've headed it, exposing the MHRA. What you've got to think about is how much information they were supposed to look through in a short space of time to get. We didn't have a, an EUA. We had a conditional uh, license given to these um, products, which was the equivalent of an emergency use authorization. Um, so we've got um, the Pfizer data that we've just kind of been going through uh, with the analysis is 451,000 pages. The Moderna data uh, with the uh, Pfizer um, up to 15-year-old data, the 12 to 15-year-old data, is 4.8 million pages. So just think about that. That's a lot of, a lot of reading to be done. Um, and I've given you there um, the three... Uh, vaccines for COVID-19, when the data was submitted to the MHRA and when it was approved so that it could actually be uh, used. And it meant with uh, AstraZeneca, they took about three months to review it. Um, with Pfizer, they took about two months. And with Moderna, it was just a little over two months that they took before the licenses were, were given, the license to be able to use the, the product. Um, but of course, that wasn't three months plus two months plus two months. It was actually all done roughly at the same time, as you can see from the dates on the uh, on the slide. Um, and what we have to remember is that um, they would have been given this amount of data within the um, MHRA. And um, when we look at the amount of people it's taken to analyse this amount of data that um, was uh, achieved in the uh, states through a freedom of information, we've got 3,250 researchers um, that have analysed these 451,000 pages, and they've been doing that since March 2022. So that's how much time it's taken them to actually look at this data. Um, if you look at the MHRA, the MHRA um, in 2019-2020 had about 1,324 staff, but not all of those people will be analysts. And I haven't found out how many of them were working on analysing the data that was coming through, but that's how many they had. I mean, in comparison, the FDA, um, who increased their staff when they saw the amount of side effects that were coming through, had 18,000 staff, and they have a budget of, of $6 billion. So that's how they stack up in terms of numbers. But the MHRA, in every board meeting Debbie and I have listened to, have been moaning about them being down on staff numbers. Um, and when uh, this was all going on, when um, they were given all this information, don't forget we were in lockdown. And there is um, information from one of the um, board meetings that talked about the majority of staff working at home and they didn't return to work until May 2021, which is when they tried to encourage them to come back. So the majority of staff were at home. Um, they were 20% down on staff 
um, at about this time. And the people that they said in the board meetings, the people they said they were recruiting were inexperienced. They had to train them up. Um, so how effective was the analysis that they were doing? Um, and in one of my, uh, my freedom of information to try and get the AstraZeneca data, when I actually had an internal review done, one of the um, <laughs> comments that they made was, oh, it would be so difficult to get the information out because when they um, were using all this information, the computers kept crashing. It hasn't happened with the uh, American researchers who, well, not just American, but these 3,250 um, Pfizer, Moderna um, analysis researchers, they've de designed new programs to be able to cope with the amount of data and the way that it has been given to them, which has been a bit odd, which is why they're now prepared to look at the Moderna data, being that it's so big they can handle it. But with our dear old MHRA, their computers kept crashing. And that was obviously, if people were analysing things at home, that was remote um, analysis as well. Um, the other thing that they didn't do at this time uh, in terms of um, making sure everything was okay was go out to labs and manufacturing units and make sure everything was okay because that's their job. Um, to make sure that we've got uh, good laboratory practice, good manufacturing practice happening. Though now, at this point, we're doing virtual inspections, and that's how they continue to go. Very difficult to do a virtual inspection accurately, I would suggest, of a manufacturing unit that's trying to show you what they want you to see. Um, so the other thing was, if you look at the, the MHRA left the uh, EMA, kind of completely severed their their contacts with the EMA in terms of working um, uh, as part of one unit um, in January, 1st of January, uh, 2021. So this all happened when really they still had connections with the EMA. The EMA reports have been very detailed. So the EMA does an open assessment report and that has actually done what it was supposed to do and come up with a whole load of objections and recommendations on the clinical trials and what have you. And they set a date by which that information was supposed to come back to them. I don't think the information was ever provided, but they asked the questions. MHRA in their public assessment reports have not asked any questions. They've just accepted the data because I think they were told to accept the data. So I asked the questions. I was just going to clarify that um, EMA is the European's Medicine Agency. So the EMA oh. is the equivalent to the MHRA only in, in Europe. And I mean, I, I'm listening to this and I, I, I mean, I remember the days I, of the board meetings right at the beginning. I've watched every single one of them right from the get go uh, when they were all on Zoom. And even when they were on Zoom, you know, n none of them were sitting around a meeting table, obviously, because it was lockdown. So they were all on Zoom and the connections kept going and then somebody couldn't uh, connect to the meeting or somebody lost reception or somebody was muted. So, you know, th th it was very confusing at the best of times. And when you say that these these documents, you know, remotely, they're going to get remote inspections and remote analysis, you know, half the time when you're doing analysis and when you're doing research, the whole bit is to discuss it with other people. And that's why being with other people in a laboratory or in an office or wherever is very useful because you talk to other people, whereas they were all isolated. And, and I'm just trying to picture, and I think it's important that we try to picture 
what these documents would look like because there's hundreds of thousands and of course millions in the case of Moderna. I mean, you imagine that piled up in your front room or piled up in your inbox, emails in your inbox. And June Rain's talking about a week. She's talking about making fast decisions, asking no questions whatsoever and priding herself because I've watched her and she prides herself on the speed and she lets she's trying to say that her staff were working around the clock 24/7 for maybe a week, 10 days, 2 weeks and then they felt they had enough evidence to approve it and and she's really proud of this achievement and it, it just i mean those what you're saying is is shocking shocking if somebody could throw back at us well the 3250 researchers aren't working in a, a building together they're not they're all over the place some are in different countries but they have um a very good person in amy kelly who's so organized with everybody who puts them into teams as group people together they have group meeting teams meetings to actually discuss everything everything is analyzed chris flowers gets involved in analyzing a lot of what is being reported and making sure that everything is um, tested and tested again um, so that they're not making anything up. And the, the salient point is that Pfizer haven't sued them over anything they've said in 94 reports because it's an analysis of their own data. I think we should actually remind everybody watching, this is Pfizer's own data. Uh, and and the, the reason that... Um, Amy Kelly's team and Professor Flowers and all of his researchers can do the job that they're doing is because they're reading the papers. They're taking the time. There's thousands of them. There's thousands of them. And they're all reading the papers. And I know from speaking to Professor Flowers, as you've done on many occasions, you know, he said that they're literally working around the clock because they're in every country. So when Australia are asleep, we're awake working and vice versa. And they all get together at crazy times of the day and night to discuss and they back everything up. So this research cannot be challenged because it's Pfizer's own. Yes, that's very true. And and you see Moderna, I'm fascinated to see what happens or what their data shows because they're three times the dose of Pfizer. And if the effects are a dose related, then it's going to throw up some very important points that we need to know. Yeah, let's qualify that, Cheryl, because you brought up a really what? good, interesting point here. And it's something that I tell people, that if you were to go into a vaccination centre and there were two people sitting next, next door to one another and one was having a Pfizer vaccine and the other was having a Moderna the one that's having Pfizer is having 30, three zero micrograms. And the one that's having Moderna is having 100 micrograms. So one person is having three times more the dose than the person sitting next to them. And many people I say that to are absolutely staggered. But that is the truth of the matter, isn't it, Cheryl? It is. And if you think about a child sitting next to an adult, with the child, um, Moderna is um, 25 micrograms as opposed to 30 in the adult Pfizer. So the Moderna child's dose is virtually the same as the Pfizer adult dose. 
the Pfizer child dose is 10 microgram. So that's another thing to consider as well. Um, but that's obviously data that will come to in time as they go through the Moderna uh, information. So what I asked was, um, does June Rain believe what she says? Because she keeps coming out with things like, our assessors have worked around the clock, as you said, Debbie, uh, reviewing hundreds of pages of data. We approved the vaccine trials within about a week, sometimes shorter. And I think that was in um, Breckenridge. That's so Alistair it. Breckenridge. It was his memorial speech that June Rain did, um, that she stated that. So these are things she said out loud on camera. Um, and she said it took long, long hours, weekends and evenings spent looking at data as soon as it appears. Um, and that's how she got through 451,000 pages in a period of no longer than three months. So basically, the MHRA's answers are not informed answers. Whenever you ask them a question, as I did at the board meeting, you don't get any information um, that is useful. They're not telling the truth. They've lost the ability to protect the public from harmful substances. Pharmacovigilance is our um, assessment of a drug to see whether we should um, be able to be, be given it, whether it is safe and effective. Um, the MHRA have demonstrated duplicitous and disingenuous behaviour, and I believe they've demonstrated malfeasance in public office. Wow. Well, I mean... I, I have to say, I would probably agree with you there, Cheryl, on all counts. And you asked the question, um, does June Rain believe what she's saying? And I think uh, I'm not going to ask you the question because I think I'm going to know the answer. But I'm going to ask our audience, um, do you believe June Rain? Do you think June Rain has lied to you? And um, that's a question for everybody listening. So, yes, thank you for that, Cheryl. And um, you're going to bring us on to something else now too, aren't you? I am, just to, to kind of um, pull everything together. I suppose I should have done this first. Um, this is something that Nick Hudson put together uh, in terms of what we went through in a month. So this is the development of our, our last pandemic, um, the 30th of December, 2019 through to the end of January, the 30th of January, 2020. And um, I believe that they've lied about spreading this risk pathogen. So on the 30th of December, 2019, um, there were reports that there was an atypical pneumonia in China. And then it took about five days to the 5th of January for them to start saying they got 44 cases of atypical pneumonia and that was of unknown etiology, unknown cause. And then by the 7th, two days later, they declared, we know what it is now, it's a new SARS virus that's causing it. And then the 9th, so again, another two days on, they've now got 65 cases. Okay, so from the 5th to the 9th, in four days, they got 20 more cases in the whole of China. And then uh, on the 12th of January, um, we knew that PCR kits to test for this new thing had started to be shipped from the manufacturers. They started being sent out. And at that time, uh, the first gene sequence that the PCR kit was supposed to be based on had been published. The 14th, which again is another two days, this is when the WHO came in and accepted publicly the Drosten, so Christian Drosten, the German who developed the PCR protocol, 
that was used in the test, um, who accepted that as being okay. Um, and then we get to um, the 23rd of January, um, and this is when the PCR protocol that the WHO had already accepted was then peer-reviewed. Um, and so, unfortunately, um, it went into the Euro Surveillance publication, and Christian Drosten was an editor there of the place that had um, reviewed, peer-reviewed um, his protocol. And unbe unbeknown before, it was published within 27 hours. And then by um, the 25th of January, the New England Journal of Medicine had published the Chinese study on COVID symptoms. And by the 30th, so that was five days later, again, the New England Journal of Medicine had published on asymptomatic transmission, that wonderful um, way of transmitting without having a cough or a, a sneeze amongst you. So that was the asymptomatic transmission um, of spread. So that was a month's worth of creation. And what um, Nick Hudson goes on to say in summary is that it established a compressed time frame of just one month. We got new clinical manifestation that's caused by a virus. This virus has the following sequence that they made known. Here's a test, which is the gold standard in identifying the primer that we are going to use all over the world. It's now peer-reviewed and it's published. And this description of the clinical features of this new disease is known. And so Nick Hudson, after he got to the end of this um, creation story, he said every single one of these steps was A, complete, well, I'll just say bull, um, and B, um, premeditated. And what he also says, which I think you have to think about in terms of a planned pandemic in the future, is the truth about pandemics. Pandemics are not increasing. We don't get any more than we, we, we've seen before. Pandemics are not getting worse because for something to be able to spread, it doesn't kill the person very quickly that has got it. I mean, Ebola puts people in their bed and they die fairly quickly before they can pass it on. So pandemics are not getting any worse. Human contact with wildlife is not increasing. In fact, as we live more in towns and cities, we're getting further away from wildlife. And the large historic outbreaks um, were probably bacterial, which is what they think the Spanish flu that turned into bacterial pneumonia. And um, obviously, when there weren't antibiotics in uh, 1918, uh, a lot of people ended up um, dying, unfortunately. So just some things to consider as to why we ended up with all these um, vaccines that are now being analysed in all the uh, documentation, um, why we actually ended up with this pandemic. And do you believe that all that could have happened within a month? When you put it like that, it's very sobering, isn't it? When you see it and you hear it like that. And, you know, one of the red flags that always struck me was a pandemic historically normally burns itself out three to four years. And vaccine development take up to 10 years, you know. So what would be the point? I always thought, what would be the point of going for a vaccine when it's going to burn itself out eventually, you know, after three to four years. So that was always one of my 
red markers. But, you know, they say, what is it? They say the bigger the lie, the the easier it will be for people to believe it. And this is just lie after lie. This is corruption. This is fraud. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for keeping us updated because you're bringing information to us direct from the, uh, the Daily Clout, Dr. Naomi Wolf, uh, Professor Chris Flowers. Um, and it's coming exclusively to the, co- to the column, to UK column. So I really would say to people, please go to the front of the website because the Situation Room has been set up by Mike Robinson. And together, Cheryl and Mike are updating it regularly. So all the reports will come um, and, and be shown after after it's been on the clout, they'll come straight to the situation room. And as Cheryl said, very easy to find in the search bar. So just put what it is that you're looking for in particular, and it'll flag up the relevant reports. Cheryl, before I throw to you for your last word, for the final word, is there anything else you want to say with regards to either what we've just discussed about the MHRA or the reports that you've um, so kindly gone through today? I just want people to be aware. Be aware of what's happening around them. I mean, if you look at that month worth of development of our pandemic that we've just had, all those items were on our our news. We constantly, it seemed like every night, we were being told about the number of cases and what have you. It was developing in front of our eyes. Um, And when the vaccine started coming out, we were told a story, we were told a line, and um, I want to open people's eyes, as I say, so they say no more. And um, I hope to develop the situation room with some more information in that will be helpful to people, especially people who are worried um, as a result of things that I might have said today. Um, there is help. There are things that can be done. And we'll bring that information to people as soon as we can. Yeah, and I think that is really important, Cheryl, that, you know, for anybody watching, and um, please don't get worried. Um, don't get scared. There are plenty of protocols that you can do. And we've got uh, on all of Cheryl's interviews, if you just go into the search bar, you'll see lots of interviews with Cheryl um, and also uh, a bunch uh, a bunch of flowers for Pfizer with Professor Chris Flowers, where he talks about protocols as well. So um, please, please don't be don't be worried. And before I throw to you for the last word, I think um, I'm just quickly going to have the last word as well. I'm going to have my own last word for a change. And my last word is going to be addressed to Dame June Rain. Um, Dame June Rain, you obviously haven't and couldn't have read all of the evidence and the reports that Pfizer and Moderna have sent to you and your clinical assessment team. So my question to you, Dame June Rain, is are you now listening to the evidence? Because we won't allow this evidence to be buried. And we will carry on, we will report on the serious adverse reactions, and we will speak to those who are vaccine injured, and we will hear those stories, because you won't. And on that note, Cheryl, I want to thank you again so much for all that you're doing. And it's over to you for the last word. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to um, bring this to people's attention. And I always thought it was strange that the MHRA could be juggled about and it actually spells harm. And they're supposed to protect us from harm. 
and they haven't done that at all. If she says once more that they did a robust review, I'm probably going to scream um, because there's nothing robust about the review that they did. They're still using safe and effective. We've even had the Prime Minister say these vaccines are safe. And um, it's a word that they're not supposed to use about medications anyway. But at the end of the day, um, we need to let people know exactly what they should have been told in the beginning.